0: Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side.
1: And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering.
0: Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences.
1: There'll be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us here on the PhD Talk podcast.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the PhD Talk podcast. Let's look first at the how and why of this podcast, and then I'll introduce my co-host for this podcast. A few weeks ago, I had sent out uh, the ID on my Facebook and and Twitter pages to see if somebody wanted to co-host because my idea for this podcast is really to have a conversation between a current PhD student and uh, myself on the whole PhD experience, uh, the topics that I write about on my blog. So that's what you will find in this podcast. It will be as a conversation and we will have guests as well. And let me start by introducing my co-host and I'll ask him some questions. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Who are you? What's your background and what's your interest in participating in the podcast?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say uh, thank you to Eva for having me as her co-host. This is a really interesting experience. It's the first time I've been recording my voice, Never mind being part of a podcast. So I want to just say that that's going to be a very interesting experience, and I look forward to it. As for my research, right now it's focused on how reinforced concrete structural components behave during earthquakes. The specific topic has to do with shear strength and how it degrades during seismic events. As part of the research, we've designed, built, and tested some reinforced concrete columns, and we're currently working on the numerical analysis to better understand the behavior of these types of structures. My background's in structural engineering, so I studied civil engineering at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. Then I continued on to do a master's and a PhD here. That sort of flies against the the traditional wisdom that you should change university for your PhD, but here we are. I decided to continue on at McGill.
0: For me, it's, it's quite nice that I found a co-host that is in pretty much the same field as me, even though there was not a requirement or anything. It just uh, happens to be like that. For sure, anything that is shear problems in in concrete applications is a, a topic that gets a lot of discussions and that entertains many structural engineers.
1: Well, absolutely, and you know it's good to have somebody else to talk to about it. And in fact, that's how I first sort of was introduced to your work in the blog. Uh, there's a you know a sort of a seminal paper in in structural engineering, the riddle of shear design, or the riddle of I forget the exact name of the paper now.
0: I think it's a riddle of sheer failure and its solution. 1964, I think.
1: Yes. And in fact, we don't really have a solution for it currently. So I was searching for that paper and some background on on the researcher, um, Kenny. and you had a blog post talking about it. And I said, oh, what's this blog post about? You know, I'm doing my PhD, PhD talk. This is something I'd like to follow. And so then I followed you on Twitter and uh, I have your blog bookmarked on my bookmark tab and I check it, you know, every day or a couple of times a week. That's how I was introduced to PhD talk.
0: Yeah, great. Um, on the same lines, can you tell us a little bit more why you, you responded to my tweet when I when I said, oh, I have the idea of maybe starting a podcast uh, as a conversation between me and a PhD student. What motivated you?
1: I guess, firstly, anything to do with podcasts, I'm super interested in. I, I listen to way more podcasts than I probably should. And then the other part, I guess, is that in general, I'm a curious person. And so talking to you about it and your vision for this podcast, which involves interviewing researchers and PhD students, that's something that I'm very much interested in. I love hearing about other people's passions and about the research that they're conducting. And also being able to share my PhD experience and hopefully show people that even though a PhD can be a lonely experience, there's a lot of people going through the same thing and the same challenges that you are. And so hopefully this PhD Talk podcast sort of inspire people and help people on their PhD journey.
0: So you mentioned the PhD journey. What motivated you to start doing a PhD in the first place?
1: Initially, um, a PhD wasn't really on my radar. got into engineering because, uh, or structural engineering specifically, because I always had a fascination with, uh, with buildings and bridges. And uh, so I said, well, who works on those? Engineers do. And then while I was in my undergraduate, I had the opportunity to work with uh, graduate students as a uh, research assistant. And that was my first foray into the, the research lab. And uh, I really loved it. We were working hands-on with you know, large structural components, dealing with beams and columns, and this was some things that, I had all, that we had seen in class and I had never really experienced them firsthand. And so that was very interesting. And then, you know, as you get more into research, you see that you're really trying to push the bounds of human knowledge and, and engineering, inform the industry. Your work directly affects codes and standards. So that's why I decided to pursue a master's degree and now a PhD.
0: Is there any link between your thesis topic that you did during your master's and what you're currently working on? Or did you make a switch at some point?
1: The link is that both had to do with uh, reinforced concrete, but my master's topic was more dealing with rehabilitation and fiber-reinforced polymers. We had funding to do that, and so I jumped on it. But now my PhD topic is semi-related in that reinforced concrete is involved in both.
0: And you're in the same lab as undergrad and then master's, I assume.
1: There's only one Structures Lab at McGill. I've been in there now for two years for my master's and now for my PhD. So I'm very familiar with the Jameson Structures Laboratory and all the lab techs. We're on very good terms. I've been around that lab for
0: a while. Great. Yeah. Lab work and experimental work is certainly a lot of fun and and always surprising.
1: So I guess now I, I uh, I should ask you some questions. Firstly, what was your PhD research on?
0: I did my PhD research on the problem of shear in one-way slabs. So the application of that really is to what we call slab bridges. So the bridges that just the mass of concrete, three-dimensional elements spanning from one support to the other, and in the Netherlands, many of the bridges that were constructed in these decades after the Second World War in, in the late 50s, 60s and 70s, when we evaluate them with our current methods, it appears as if they do not have sufficient shear capacity. So that sparked a number of, of research projects that ran at the same time with regard to the shear capacity of ultimately to evaluate these slab bridges. My project was really testing slabs under a single concentrated load and, and learning more about the shear behavior in slabs. A colleague looked at then slab strips or beams without stirrups. Another colleague looked at sustained loading. And another colleague looked at a, a slightly different type of bridge. And then also looked at tensile effects so it was really nice at the time that many of us were working on a shear related topic even though we we may have been fighting a little bit for lab space because we all needed to do our experiments it was really nice to be working on a such a similar topic all together
1: i think that's something that a lot of phd students and researchers can relate to is having to share lab space
0: (laughs) yes and if somebody runs runs out because the experiments take longer, as what happened to me, because it turned out I could do many more experiments on one slab than we originally thought. So I, I pretty much occupied most of the lab for two and a half years. My colleagues that needed to test large elements after me, they were like, when are you done? When are you done? You should
1: have told them to put on their steel-toed boots and get in the lab with you. That's uh, We had to do something similar. We had sort of a scheduling issue. And so I got to uh, work with another PhD student on another project related to steel design.
0: In, in Delfty, we are in the same building as Steel and the Pavement Lab, but it's separate halls. So we have our assigned space for concrete structures. And next to us is the Research Engineering Recycling Group. So we have to kind of stay within our spot and, and then amongst ourselves, organize ourselves to see who gets lab space.
1: Oh, yeah, that, that's a good way to, to go about organizing things. It's a lot better than just everybody fighting for lab space. What research are you working on now? And uh, how, do you, how do you split your time?
0: So after I got my PhD, I was on a number of short-term projects, which were like a number of postdocs that were part-time. As at the same time, I got an assistant professorship in Ecuador. In terms of research, I worked on a number of pretty much whatever was needed, the funding that came in, that work that needed to be done. So I worked on fatigue-related problems. I worked on validation of software for the assessment of, of bridges, concrete bridges. I worked on load testing of bridges, proof load testing, Collapse testing of bridges, we did two collapse tests, and ultimately what gained me my tenure at Delft is also the research line of load testing. But I still work on shear-related problems, plasticity-based design. So a little broader than what I did during my PhD, I also worked here in Ecuador on steel fiber reinforced concrete and and the shear capacity thereof. I've worked together with a colleague from Portugal. We've worked on uh, data-driven design and analysis of concrete with neural networks. So all of it's still related to design and analysis of concrete structures, geared mostly towards bridges with a focus on shear, punching, and torsion topics, but a little broader than what I worked on during my PhD. And then in terms of how I divide my time, under normal circumstances, I spent the fall and spring semester in Ecuador, and then the summer semester in the Netherlands. So I still am part-time in the Netherlands. And what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, because I don't wait to do Delft research until I'm there in the summers, is, of course, I do my teaching for uh, the university here, I have usually a lot of, of research projects going on at the same time. So it really depends on a almost week-to-week basis which project gets preference.
1: Do you find that a challenge, having to conduct research at a distance, so to speak, or is that not a problem for you?
0: In terms of what comes into data processing and all of that... That's not an issue at this time. Sometimes there's minor technical glitches, right? I need something from our shared drive and I need to do remote desktop to my office computer and, and somehow it's been pulled out from the internet or it's been pulled off the electricity and I need to send a text message to somebody say, hey, can you go check in my office where my computer is because I'm trying to remote desktop and it says it can't find it. But in general terms, that works well. I think the biggest struggle so to say at this point in time is to balance teaching my own research supervising the research of my PhD and master students I do a fair amount of service in technical committees get a lot of requests to review articles and they all look interesting but I have to say no more often And I'm also editor for a number of journals and editor-in-chief of the science and engineering journal of the university here in Ecuador. So it's a lot of balls in the air.
1: So your situation is that you're part-time in the Netherlands and you're living and working in Ecuador. Do you see a lot of colleagues doing a similar thing where they're part of two institutions? I
0: think my case is relatively unique in a sense that... I really have a part-time assistant professorship with tenure in the Netherlands. I think most of my colleagues in Delft are really there full-time or their part-time, but in combination with an industry position in the Netherlands. When it comes to my colleagues here in Ecuador, we are part of a relatively young university. Ecuador itself barely has any PhD programs. There is one in microbiology and that's to the best of my knowledge, one of the very few programs in the country. So most of my colleagues, at least if getting a position in Ecuador is going back home for them, then they have done their PhD in Europe or in another country of Latin America or in, in North America. So they typically still have ties and some of them have adjunct professorships. Many of them have adjunct professorships at universities internationally or they form part of collaboration. So from the Ecuadorian side, it is more common to really rely on our networks to collaborate internationally.
1: Well, that's an interesting uh, duality between uh, Latin America and, uh, and Europe. And sort of our last question for Eva right now, what inspired you to start blogging? And uh, to start PhD talk?
0: I have been blogging on and off for quite a number of years, actually, since I was in high school. But I always started a blog posted maybe three or four times. And the only person who would read it would be my best friend and maybe my mom. And that was it. And then I thought, well, I will start writing about my PhD. And in the beginning, I was not putting much time and effort in it, just writing down whenever I learned something or when I thought it would be good to document. And around the same time, I had joined Twitter and I was sharing some of my posts there. And I started to notice that more people were reading and interacting and haven't stopped writing on my blog since then.
1: So sort of a natural progression from uh, just your mom and your best friend reading.
0: Yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you for answering my questions. Thank you for asking my questions. I think this gives our listeners a a good introduction to who we are. And I already gave a bit of an introduction on what they can expect from this podcast. So I'd like to thank everybody for listening and see you at the next episode.